you turn with me in your scripture to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we continue our uh, study of this letter of the Apostle uh, to a church that uh, had been and was being persecuted for their faith, suffering for uh, the name of Christ and uh, the Apostle Peter encouraging them uh, to live uh, as Christians, as those who belong to Christ uh, in this world. And so a message for uh, you and I uh, as well. And so we'll pick up the reading, First Peter 2 at verse 18 down to verse 25. We're going to be focusing this morning uh, on those last two verses. And so this is the word of the Lord. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness." By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, all scripture is breathed out by you. And so, Lord, we thank you that this passage, too, is, is for us today and that as we uh, have read it and as we hear it preached, we pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would do that uh, wonderful, mysterious work, that even as we hear this word, we would know that these truths of Scripture are are not simply the words of men, uh, but they are indeed the very word of the living God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, All of you, I'm sure, have heard of the... uh, theologian in many ways, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was put to death, executed by the Nazis in uh, 1945, April 8th, just before the war uh, ended. He wrote a book that became very popular that most, a lot of folks have, have read called The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, in that book, uh, he writes these words, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death, and thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it's the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. He himself, the Bible says, bore our sins in his body 
on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, uh, you have been healed. Last time, you might remember that we uh, uh, spent our time in uh, the first part of verse 24, just focusing on those words, he himself. That it was he, not, uh, not another, but it was Jesus himself, the spotless, uh, blameless Lamb of God, Messiah, the Christ, uh, the Son of God. He himself who bore our sins. Uh, so he stood in our place. He was our substitute. He took our sins with him to the cross uh, and died in our place on the tree. So that at the cross, uh, our sin as believers is fully paid for. Remember that? So we spent some time thinking about he himself. But of course, that's not where uh, that verse ends. So this morning, we, uh, having looked at he himself, this morning we want to think about simply we ourselves. He himself and we ourselves. Because we have to ask the question, why did Jesus bear our sins in his body on the tree? And the Bible tells us wonderfully, why was Jesus our substitute? Why is Jesus the substitute on the cross for sinners? Well, Peter tells us that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, you've got to remember that Peter here in this letter, uh, as we have seen, he's concerned with how the Christian, defined uh, right in the opening of this letter, the Christian, someone who has been uh, born again from the dead, someone who has, uh, the Lord has caused to be born again, new life through faith in Christ and faith in his death and resurrection, how that Christian is to live today, right, in a hostile world. That's kind of the background theme of this whole uh, letter in the world of the United States in 2022. Well, says Peter, uh, Christ suffered and died on the cross uh, that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. He himself bore our sins. We ourselves die to sin and live to righteousness. So we have to ask, first of all, the question, how do we die to sin? Well, first of all, we die to the, the penalty of sin. This is how we die to sin. Through our faith union with Jesus Christ, through putting our faith in him, uh, we no longer live in fear of judgment and punishment for our sin. It no longer has a, uh, has a hold uh, upon us. This is wonderfully described also in the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at this this, this Wednesday night. But Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So your death to sin means, first of all, uh, that you die to the penalty of sin. You no longer uh, fear judgment and punishment because of your sin against a holy God. And why not? Because the Bible says, well, if Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, we ourselves need not bear them. It's impossible for my sin to be both on my back and also on his. It's impossible 
that Jesus has taken my sin from me and yet left them on me. Our sins cannot be in two places at the same time. And if Christ has borne them, I no longer bear them. Imagine, uh, imagine, let's say you have a mortgage for a million-dollar home, and every month uh, you're paying $5,000 towards that loan. Now, let's say you have a, a generous relative uh, who uh, completely pays off your loan, all debts paid, you're thankful. Uh, so generous, this, this relative. Uh, but the next month, you send your mortgage payment in like usual. You just keep on one month, another 5000 You just keep sending checks. Now, who does that in the financial world? No one. No one does that. Why do we do it in the church? Christ, the Bible says, bore the penalty of our sins on the tree, on the cross. No more payment to be made. We don't need to bear them anymore. And it goes like this. Your bank comes to you and says, look, we've got a whole file full of bills, overdue payments uh, that are on your account. And if you don't pay them, we're going to foreclose on your house. You're going to be homeless and penniless and without hope. Your bills are due. Uh, But as a Christian, you don't blink an eye. And the banker becomes a little frustrated. He says, aren't you concerned about this? I mean, look at all these bills. You're in way over your head. But you calmly point out to him that even though all those bills have your name on the top, uh, the name on the bottom in red letters or the words on the bottom says, uh, paid in full. And then the banker says, Did you pay those debts? And you say, no, not me. He says, "Uh, did you pay any of them? And you say, no, not a penny. And he says, well, how then did these bills get paid? Here's how it works. Satan comes to us and says, oh, you say you are a Christian. But look at all these debts. Did you pay them, says Satan? Did you pay any of them? And you'd have to say, well, no, no. But he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There is no penalty left. There's no payment to be made. There's no penance to be rendered. In Christ, we die to the penalty of sin. Uh, And that's a glorious gospel truth. Jesus Paid for all my sin. I don't bear them anymore. They can't be two places at once. All on the Savior. All at the cross. All crucified. Forgiven. But in Christ, the Bible also tells us, we also die to the, uh, to the uh, power of sin. Did you notice what Peter says in this verse? He bore our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to Righteousness, die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, this is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus deals with both the penalty of sin and the power of sin in the life of those who belong to him. Uh, Romans 6 puts it this way, where the Apostle Paul writes uh, in Romans 6, verse 6, these words, We know that our old self, we just talked about that, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, says Paul, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Consider yourself, says the apostle, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, how do we do that? How do we uh, consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus? How does being alive to God in Christ Jesus, how does that arise within us? Well, listen to the, uh, listen to the 19th century Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers, who preached the famous sermon, uh, The Expulsive Power uh, of a New Affection. And it goes like this, the love of the world, he says, cannot be, so that's what's in our hearts by nature, right? The love of sin and the love of the world. The love of the world, he says, cannot be expunged or got rid of by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. We can't get rid of our love for sin just by saying, well, sin is ugly. It's filthy. Uh, It's dishonoring to God. It doesn't usually leave for that reason. But may it not, he says, be supplanted or uh, replaced uh, by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. The heart cannot be prevailed upon to part with the world by a simple act of resignation, but may not the heart be prevailed upon to admit into its preference another who shall subordinate the world and bring it down from its wanted ascendancy. If the throne of our heart, which is placed there, must have an occupier, and the tyrant, that is sin, that now reigns, has occupied it wrongfully, he may not leave a bosom or a heart which would rather detain him than be left in desolation. He's not going to leave because our natural tendency and sinful heart is to keep him there, the love of sin. But he may, says Chalmers, he, 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 but may he not give way to the lawful sovereign, appearing with every charm that can secure his willing admittance, and taking unto himself his great power to subdue the moral nature of man and to reign over it. Isn't it possible, says Chalmers, that maybe even though sin, uh, our love of sin doesn't, uh, can't be removed just by showing how sinful it is and ugly it is, but can it be maybe that the lawful sovereign of our heart could you know, push that love of sin out and replace it with a love of himself? And then he closes with this. This, we trust, will explain the operation of that charm which accompanies the effectual preaching of the gospel. This is what happens when someone hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and believes it, he says. The love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity, and are irreconcilable, and they cannot dwell in the same heart. We already affirmed how impossible it were for the heart by uh, any act of its own to cast the world away and, uh, reduce, uh, and to thus reduce itself to a wilderness. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a, of a new one, you see. Now, that may have been hard to understand, but what he's simply saying is this. The only way 
to root out of our heart a love for sin is if uh, a greater love, a greater affection pushes it out. And what is the gospel? Well, it is the, it is the greater affection of God for us in Christ uh, that, that pushes out our love of sinning and replaces it with a love for Christ. You say, well, really? Well, yeah, you see this in the Bible. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Have you concluded this? That one has died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See what he says there? So the apostle saying himself, this is why I do what I do as an apostle. The love of Christ, the love of God for me in Christ controls me, compels me, uh, drives me. Why? Because he knew uh, that Christ died and was raised for his sake. So if you're struggling to be motivated to die to sin and to live to righteousness, uh, what do you need to do? Well, you need to remember what God has done for you in Christ. This is what Peter does in, in his next letter. Second Peter 1, he'll say things like this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You ever feel like you don't have the resources to live the Christian life? Peter says, you have all you need in Jesus Christ. A few verses later, he says, for this very reason, because we have everything in Christ, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and so forth, all the way to brotherly affection. And then he says this, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. You're, struggling, you're, don't, you're not seeing any fruit in your Christian life. He's nearsighted. He's blind. Peter says, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This is important. So this is saying, if you're struggling with your Christian life, say, why should I live for Christ? Why should I be a Christian? Why should I come to worship? Why should I go to Bible study? Why should I love my neighbor? If you're struggling with any of those things, as we all do, the Bible says the answer to that is to, to have the same conviction of the Apostle Paul, that it's only the love of Christ that is going to compel you. That is, you're seeing that he died on the cross for your sin. And that, said the Apostle Paul, that compels me not only to know that my sin is forgiven and uh, there's no more penalty for my sin coming, but it also, it also works to, to cleanse me within so that I might live for him now. Now, this is, this is good news. That what Jesus does on the cross, not only does he deal with the penalty of my sin, so I don't need to fear judgment, but the Bible says he also deals with the power of sin in my life, that I am no longer a slave to sin uh, because the love of God for me in Christ has, has pushed it out. And now uh, I'm driven by love for him in what I do and say and where I go. Now, for some professing Christians, though, 
They seem to have a problem with this. Um, as for the fact that he himself bore our sins on the tree, they're ready to sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. No more burden for me. No more judgment for me. I'm no longer under God's wrath and curse for sin. Jesus has paid it all. I'm free from the guilt and penalty of sin. And then they stop. As if the only thing Jesus came to do was to save you from a future judgment. But as far as today, His love for you and His death on the cross doesn't mean a thing. Because it doesn't change your life at all. But Peter's declaration of the gospel doesn't end with Jesus taking the penalty for our sin. That's to stop mid-sentence. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, or in order that, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Um, for by his wounds you have been, you've been healed. You were straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is the shepherd and watchman of your souls. Not by your own power to be sure. Peter has already told us that we are a chosen race. Uh, we have been called by God. Uh, he caused us to be born again. We don't turn to Christ on our own any more than a dead corpse uh, turns to the doctor and says, please heal me. That doesn't happen. No, God works that new life in us. You were strained, but now in Christ, you're returned. And returned there literally means to be turned about, uh, turned around. That is, you weren't concerned about being under the guiding hand of the shepherd and the watchful care of the overseer of Jesus, but through faith in Jesus Christ, now you have returned. You, you once were a wandering sheep, as Isaiah 53 says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. So... All of us are wandering street, sheep, but by God's grace, uh, through the work of His Holy Spirit, uh, uh, they, some are turned, and they're brought back, and, and we're under His care. The power of sin has been broken in your life. Your life has changed. You were wandering, but now, but now you've returned to the shepherd to hear His voice. You're no longer under the power of sin, but under the power and guidance of leadership, and voice of the shepherd. And the Bible says you no longer as a Christian then live to sin, but you live to righteousness. Said Paul, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Isn't that great? You see, that's the gospel. You see, yes, the penalty of sin Jesus takes upon himself at the cross, and the power of sin is defeated too, so that in Christ I am no longer a slave to sin, but a slave, the Bible says, to Christ. And he's my master, and he's the good master. Um, as we're looking for homes in New Jersey, uh, our home hasn't sold yet in Calamasa. We haven't had an offer, actually, on our house, so... Uh, but we're looking at homes in New Jersey, and as we've been talking to the realtor, um, uh, we were talking about, oh, you know, it has a master bedroom, and, and she said something like, oh, we don't use that word master anymore. Um, it's going to be a primary bedroom and, and secondary and so forth. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I thought, well, we can't lose that word. 
You know, that's a Bible word. Uh, Jesus is our master. Yes, that word has been abused in the history of men, for sure, in slavery. Uh, but that's a Bible word. And you might want to rule it out of the, you know, the U.S. culture, that, that our culture may not use that word, but for the Christian, they always will. Because he's my, he's my good, glorious, merciful master. I'm saved from the guilt and penalty of sin, and I'm saved from the dominion and power of sin. Uh, again, listen to the Apostle Paul uh, as he speaks in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, uh, where it says this, For God has done, in Jesus, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he was like us in every way except for sin, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, that is, in Jesus, in order that. Why? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus died so that we would no longer live in sin, but that we would live in righteousness, that we'd walk in His ways. This is what Jesus has done for believers at the cross. The good news, friends, is not only that you are justified in Christ, but you are sanctified in Christ. You are are cleansed in Christ. Um, When you become a Christian, you are not given a half Christ. The online online grow group is studying a book by Sinclair Ferguson called uh, The Whole Christ. And you get a little bit of the idea where he's going there. Uh, That it's not just that Jesus has died to take away the penalty of sin, but He has died and been raised again to deal with uh, the power of sin in our life. We're no longer slaves, so that we in fact now live for Him. Said Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30, speaking of God, and because of Him, you're in Christ Jesus, right now as a Christian, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, uh, and sanctification, and redemption. Here's the thing. By grace, through faith, as a believer, you are united to the whole Christ uh, and all His benefits. You see. Justified, sanctified, glorified. Think about it this way. Would it really be good news if, um, if a man flailing about in a roaring, surging, rock-filled river heading towards a waterfall that would mean sheer death, is told that he need no longer worry. Uh, engineers have rushed to the scene and they've diverted the waterway away from the falls. And yet, leave the man flailing in the river. Would it really be good news if you were trapped <clears throat> in an upper floor bedroom of your burning home and you see the firemen come down the street They put up a rescue ladder, they come to your aid by giving you a fireproof fireman's suit and then leaving you in the house as it burns down around you. Would it really be good news if you lived in medieval times and were the prisoner of a wicked tyrant, you're locked up in the dungeon of his castle, you're sentenced to die on the gallows? Uh, Is it good news to receive uh, from the news from the true king that He's issued a decree that you're no longer subject to death and will by no means be put to death. 
only to leave you in the dungeon till you die there? Would it really be good news if the Bible taught that Jesus saves you from the guilt and penalty of sin, that is, you will not be punished eternally because of your sin, but you will remain under its dominion and enslaving power, that is, your life will not change at all. And that though Jesus is powerful to save you from the future punishment of sin, His work on the cross has no relevance to your life today. That though the penalty of your sin has been dealt with, you are still a slave to sin to obey its desires. Now, if that sounds like good news to you, that you remain in the power of sin despite what Jesus has done, then perhaps you love your sin more than you love God, you see. If it's good news to you that Jesus has dealt with the punishment of your sin, but doesn't actually change your life now, and you can just continue to live in sin, well, that just means you love sin more than you love God. On the other hand, if you know it's good news to be not only set free from the gallows, but set free from the prison, to be not only set free from death by fire, but to be saved from the burning house, To not only be saved from death by plunging over the precipice of the waterfall, but taken out of the roaring, rock-filled waters. To not only know that the guilt and penalty of sin has been paid for, but that the enslaving power of sin in your life has been broken and defeated. Then indeed that is good news. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Blessed gospel. By his wounds, Peter says, you have been healed. Yes, have been is in the past tense. Have been healed. Now, healed, cleansed, restored, forgiven. Not maybe healed. Not possibly, maybe, might be healed. Not I sure hope so at some time, but I'm not really counting on it, will be healed. But you have been healed. The cross of Jesus accomplishes, friends, its purpose. There's no ifs, ands, maybes, or possiblys about it. Remember chapter 1, what Peter had said, that we have been uh, redeemed from our futile way of life. You have been healed. What does it mean to have this full Christ, this whole Christ, his work of redemption for us, Uh, What does it mean? Well, Peter simply ends with these wonderful words, right? For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's the healing of having a straying sheep brought home under the care and love and protection and provision and love of the shepherd to no longer stray to live and breathe and work and love and play and sing in the atmosphere of the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Oh, that's the gospel. I remember uh, uh, I told you uh, before about my sister Katie, who has Down syndrome, uh, when she was 10 years old and we grew up on the farm. and um, She was about 10 years old, and one day she just went missing on our farm disappeared. 
We didn't know where she was. I think my dad had already passed away, so we called folks from the church. And uh, we all started searching the farm. And then eventually one of the, I think it was one of the elders of the church, uh, we could see him coming, and, uh, and he was carrying her home. She had gotten lost in the, the back of the field. She had torn her uh, sweater, I think, on the fence and become terrified until, you know, this elder came and scooped her up and, uh, and brought her home in his arms. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, we're servants of the master. We belong to him, but the reason we rejoice to know that we belong to this master is that Jesus is also our shepherd, and we are his sheep, caring for us, guiding us, watching over us. Friends, he's died for us for this purpose, that we might be brought home, walking in his steps, dead to sin, even as he is dead to sin, living to righteousness, even as he lives to righteousness, healed, restored, forgiven, a new creation in Christ. This, says Peter, is who you are in Christ as you live in a hostile world. Yes, this affects your relationship uh, to the government. Uh, This affects your, your, uh, your household. It affects every aspect of your life because Christ has suffered For you, uh, when you should have suffered instead, Christ bore your sins in his body, when you should bear your own sins in your own body. By Christ's wounds, you are healed when you should be wounded as the sheep who has strayed. But in Christ, in union with him, you have returned to the shepherd. In Christ, you know he himself bore your sins on the tree. In Christ, you know that because he bore the penalty, you don't have to. And in Christ, uh, you know that love for Christ has driven out love for sin because you are always thinking and meditating on God's great love and mercy to you that instead of you facing the punishment on the cross, God has meted out that punishment uh, on his own son, not only to deal with the penalty of your sin but with the power of sin in your life and that that love of God for you in Christ just comes into that heart by faith, drives out love for sinning. Because sinning, after all, is what led to the cross, you see. And so a new affection, new love for God in Christ as he has given himself for us. Here in closing, these words from Jesus from the Gospel of John. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep. Maybe you're one of them. Not yet of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Friends, don't ever forget that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been 
healed. You've returned. You've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. But I guess the question is, have you? Have I returned to the shepherd? Because it's only in the shepherd, you see, that all this is true. And without him, our sin is still upon us. But in him, it is paid for. And the power of it has been destroyed. May it be true of you. And may it be true of me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Oh Lord, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. And without your Holy Spirit in this place right now, in our minds and in our hearts, oh Lord, these are just so many words from someone up here. And the words upon the page remain words upon the page, but by your grace and by your mercy, through the work of your Holy Spirit, you use weak men and weak vessels, weak instruments to accomplish your great and holy purposes. Oh, help us, Lord, today to see something of the glorious Savior that we would be able to say of ourselves, we are the ones who have returned. We are the ones who've been returned. We are the ones who've been scooped up in the arms of the shepherd and, and brought home and found healing and cleansing, restoration and forgiveness, and a new love for Christ through the work of our Savior. May that be our testimony today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.